0: You're listening to Season 7 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. Researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 7.5, Noblesse Oblige. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, rethinking my no remakes policy as I imagine all the things that I personally would have done differently with F91's story.
0: And I'm Nina, new to F91, and somehow even after talking for two hours, I didn't get through all of my notes about this movie. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 675 patrons and subscribers. That's right, we shot straight past 650 and are so, so close to 700. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Baron B, Daxi, Muhammad Y, Tom B, Mr. West, Jeffrey G, Anna P, Count Thrashula, Austin T., Adam C., Kaz S., John B., Grendang, Rob S., Andy, Shars Mullet, Phantom Mig, Steel Gemini, Crazy Fox, Susan S., and Lance A. You keep us genki. Special thanks to our returning patrons. Happy to see you back, even though I know it's the pin you really love. And thanks to those of you who recently increased your pledges.
1: This week, we're going to drill down to talk more deeply about the stories that F91 is trying to tell, about power and the people crushed beneath it. We'll be talking about the Rona and Arno families, pairs of characters who mirror each other, the ideology of cosmo-aristocracy, just what an absolute democracy might be, and the teenagers trapped in the middle of it all, who never seem to have much of a choice about what to do. This discussion ran a bit long, so there's not going to be any research this week. Since we're going to be talking so much about the characters, let me first introduce some of the voice actors who brought them to life. Since there are so many characters in the movie, I'm only going to cover Seabook, Cecily, their respective siblings, plus Iron Mask and Mitesor today. Seabook was played by Tsujitani Koji, who has a long list of voice credits, including, of most interest to Gundam fans, Bernie Weissman from War in the Pocket, and The Knight Zeta from SD Gundam Gaiden. He's also worked as a sound director for various shows, and has occasionally sung theme songs, including for Otaku no Video, also in 1991. Cecily, or Bera, was played by the even more prolific Toma Yumi. She is going to return for minor roles in Victory, G, and Turn A Gundam, with a more major role waiting for her in Gundam Wing. She had fairly small roles on Dragon Ball Z, Sailor Moon, Tenchi Muyo, and Cowboy Bebop. She sang the theme song for Ah My Goddess, and had significant roles in the Tekken, Soul Calibur, Dead or Alive, and Metal Gear video game franchises. So if you were watching anime or playing Japanese video games in the 90s or early 2000s, then she was pretty much everywhere. Iron Mask was voiced by Maeda Masaaki. Maeda is a curious case. He's worked mostly as a live-action actor and occasionally lends his voice to the Japanese dubs of English-language movies. So he's been the Japanese voice of guys like Morgan Freeman, John Wayne, and Frank Sinatra. He was also the voice of George Jetson on the NHK version of the Jetsons. He has... Almost no anime credits. Back in 1965, he had a role on one episode of the original Astro Boy, then two small roles in the 80s before being cast as Iron Mask. And he hasn't done any anime work since then. Incidentally, his appearance on Astro Boy coincided with Tomino's time on the show, but it was not one of the episodes that Tomino directed. Maito similarly, was played by an actor with a hugely prolific career in TV dramas going back to the 50s, but basically no other experience in anime. Remarkably, he was born in 1920, made his theatrical debut on stage before World War II, played his latest and presumably last role in 2009, and as of this writing, he is 102 years old and still alive. Reese Arno's voice actress, Ikemoto Sayuri, has only a handful of voice credits. She had bit roles on Zeta Gundam as the medical staff officer who tells Jared not to try to pick a fight with Camille when he's on crutches, she was also Anu, the little sister of Kapool pilot Taman in Double Zeta. Since at least the mid-2000s, it seems that she has mostly focused on stage acting. Finally, Kusao Takeshi, voice of Doral Rona, has a long list of credits, including plenty of major roles. But the most interesting ones for our purposes are Trunks on Dragon Ball Z and Saionji in Revolutionary Girl Utena. Without any further ado, let's jump directly into our discussion. One of the difficulties in talking about this movie is that the movie spends so much time gesturing at plot lines and character developments that either aren't actually there or are just barely hinted at. And so it can be hard to focus on what is actually in the movie versus the vast uh, imaginary realm of what might possibly have been in the movie.
0: I was thinking about that a lot with specific characters and we'll get to them because my initial reaction to those characters can sometimes be extremely harsh when I try to give them the benefit of the doubt, it often involves imagining what is happening off screen mm-hmm, <laughs> during mm-hmm. various intervals. And then I wind up looping back around to, yes, but they never show any of that or even hinted it really in the movie. And so does the movie really justify <laughs> my spending <laughs> this time and imaginative energy being like, well, but maybe it's because <laughs> da, 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 da.
1: And if I were to say, you know, Which of the two sort of main characters, Seabook or Cecily, which of them is like really the protagonist of the movie? Whatever answer a person gives to that question is going to be based on what they themselves are projecting onto the movie rather than what's actually in it. Because if you go purely based on what's actually in it, neither of them is really a protagonist in the sense of like neither of them is making decisions that drive the action of the story. And so...
0: Oh man, now I... uh... (laughs) Now I'm wishing I remembered my research piece on alternative story structures better because I know the term protagonist is quite specific and generally applies to particular kinds of stories. So in different story structures, what do they call the main character if there is one? Do they just call them the main character? Are there other sort of terms involved? So I was going to argue with you about that definition of protagonists. And then I was like, well, strictly speaking, that's right. But it doesn't apply to every <laughs> kind of story.
1: Well, and there are other definitions of protagonists that a person could use. But my point is more like when we talk about these characters, often we are talking about them from very different positions because each of us is imagining a different movie in our heads because the one that was actually there just doesn't give you enough. It has so many gaps in it and how you choose to fill in those gaps is going to dramatically change your experience of the movie.
0: Tom and I were talking through sort of all the different topics and ideas we wanted to address once we were finally talking about the meat of the movie and it's really impossible to talk about the characters without also talking about the politics and ideology. Uh, They're so intricately intertwined that you have to talk about them together.
1: Yeah, especially in the Rona family, a character like Meitzer is basically just a mouthpiece for his politics, and that's fine. Some people are like that, especially politicians, and he certainly is one, but it means that there's not a lot of character there outside of what he believes, what ideology he espouses and represents.
0: I agree that there's not very much, but what is there I find very interesting Oh, I'm compelling. not arguing that with you. <laughs> But uh, before we really dig into the Ronas, we should briefly address the status quo. What is it exactly that the Ronas are setting themselves up against? What do we learn about the Federation?
1: (laughs) Very little, but we can fill in a lot of gaps, can't we? Meitzer describes the Federation as an absolute democracy, but doesn't say what that is. And that phrase admits of many possible interpretations from us, the audience. We know that the Federation elites are on Earth, although it seems that they have only recently returned to Earth. Meitzer talks a lot about people returning to Earth, that only the elites have gone back to Earth, all of which suggests that Earth was actually totally or almost totally abandoned for a while there, for some portion of the 30 years between the end of Shara's counterattack and the beginning of this movie. The Federation has a stronghold on the moon, that's where the military forces come from, The Federation has a presence here in the frontier colonies, but the frontier colonies also seem to have their own administration. The everyday running of the colonies is still being delegated to the colony corporation.
0: I am a bit curious. You mention a local administration, but are we ever shown explicitly any local government?
1: They at one point refer to and show us the assembly building.
0: Okay, so it exists, but we see no indication of them being involved in what's happening at all.
1: This is more implicit, but at the festival at the beginning of the movie, Dwight, who we know is the son of an official, is wearing a red flower with a white ribbon pinned to the lapel of his jacket. Then during the big Cosmo Babylonia parade later on, we see a bunch of VIPs in the audience who are wearing identical boutonnieres. The Crossbone Vanguard folks don't wear them. Taken together, you could conclude that maybe the red flower with white ribbon is a symbol of Frontier 4 itself and that the dignitaries at the parade include those local officials who have decided to collaborate with the new boss. While
0: well, the movie makes explicit that the leadership of the Federation has a rather horrifyingly callous indifference to what happens in many of these colonies uh, to the violence and loss of life that is occurring, there are also a great many somewhat indirect indications of the same. All of these uh, members of the Federation military, for the most part, in uniform, part of the uh, defense of the frontier sides, their behavior is meant to be indicative of the Federation as a whole. And so when the blockade openly and explicitly discusses using children as human shields... When the attempted assassination of the Ronas says the refugee casualties are an acceptable loss of life if they can end the war quickly. When the military is perfectly willing to attack small children if they won't cooperate. Cosmo's constant (laughs) mistreatment of Seabook and the others, the violence against the kids, the emotional manipulation, the threats... The fact that their own side doesn't even trust them to convey accurate and helpful information. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought that thing about Crossbone massacring everyone was just a rumor. Um, The fact that there doesn't appear to be any attempt to evacuate Frontier One in advance of this supposed massacre. And in the amount of local resentment that already exists for the Federation. That... From the get-go, from the beginning of the attack, the locals blame the military. Why didn't they know? Why haven't they stopped this? Why aren't they helping more? The comments of people at the rally. It's clear both that the Federation is kind of a horrifying institution in terms of how it treats individuals within it, and that at least within these frontier colonies, people are aware of that and resent it.
1: I would caution that the people we see at the rally are the kind of people who would show up to a rally for Cosmo Babylonia. And I did notice there are a lot of people in the crowd who don't look totally committed to this, who look very suspicious and uncertain about what's going on.
0: But don't you also think that Cosmo Babylonia is very knowingly taking advantage of what they know are pre-existing resentments? Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, the Federation is presented here as a distant and largely uninterested sovereign whose presence on the colony is principally military, and perhaps it feels like a very light hand when things aren't going wrong, but then when things do start going wrong, the Federation has little regard for the people it's supposed to be protecting. But at the same time, when we get to that speech from Iron Mask, we get to the people in the crowd, they don't really have specific grievances, except we're not paying taxes just so those elites can live fat and happy on Earth. All of their signs say things like, support the crossbone vanguard and give us back Earth, or we want Earth. Yet the Ronas are very clear uh, that the problem is people going down to Earth. Meitzer even has a bit where he's like, humanity needs to learn to live in space forever.
0: Mm -hmm. Before we move on to the Ronas from the Federation, though, I found myself contrasting a couple of unexpected characters, which is to say... Cosmo and Roy of Roy's War Museum hmm. because Roy also exercises some pretty severe tactics for his goals. And his goals are selfish. He's worried about what will happen to his museum <laughs> if the colony is invaded and his funding. And he you know destroys stores and destroys an escape route so that people can't run. And he says when he heads into battle, only death awaits those who do not fight. But it never feels as though he's trying to manipulate or browbeat the children. It feels like, as we've commented covering many other Gundam shows, there's this sense that when you're in war, you can never truly be a bystander because you cannot help but have it affect you. (laughs) Maybe you're not going to fight, but other things are going to happen. And in those circumstances, fighting is one of the few things that you can do to actually try to affect the course of events.
1: Yeah, Roy is presented as a ridiculous figure. We're supposed to laugh at him, but his philosophy and the choices he make ultimately are the same ones that the kids eventually are forced to make.
0: I wondered if he was a veteran, maybe, or, or a reenactor. He's wearing a very old uniform.
1: He is, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: but contrast this with various Federation officers who heap a blame on Seabook when things go wrong. Constantly criticize him, offer no sympathy on the death of his father, tell him it'll be his fault if his sister dies or his friends die, kick him, beat him, like, basically heaping abuse on him to get him to do what they want him to do. And the nicest, nicest Federation officials we encounter are probably, say, the acting captain of the space arc who mostly seems kind of standoffish and ineffectual to me. Like she's trying to navigate, she's trying to steer a course between what she would like to do and all this pressure she's getting from people who are higher ranking than her. And often this means she does nothing.
1: (laughs) Well, she is shown to do nothing, but one of the things that just keeps happening over and over in this movie is that the space arc keeps like moving to different positions in response, presumably, to orders or circumstances. And at some point there, close to the end, she clearly is like planning to just leave, like planning to abandon the battle and get her people out of there. Mm -hmm. She even, we know she talks to Birgit about this because of that scene where Birgit is like, hey, I wanted to talk to you when no one could listen to us. I'm going to go scout escape routes for the the space arc. Like there's a whole acting Captain Lealee Lee plotline where she does things, and it's not in the movie. So maybe she's a good character, and maybe she's not.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, there was also a moment um, when they're all criticizing Seabook for running off with the F91 and blaming him for his father's death, where her body language feels very defensive. She like, isn't facing Seabook head Mm -hmm. on. She's kind of turned sideways to him and has her arms crossed across her chest. And it's like, she has to be there, but she's trying to stay out of it. (laughs) It feels like a very weak position.
1: Often when there is a conflict within the crew, her role is to just show up and say, knock it off. Like not to resolve it, just like stop actively fighting right now on my ship. But she also has that very tender moment with Seabook's mother that, we'll need to come up back to all of this.
0: Oh, when Ceci's gun... Sessie? Cecily, sorry. I have her in all my notes as (laughs) Sessie. I didn't want to write out the extra two letters. Uh, But when her gun doesn't work in the fight with the bugs, are we meant to think that someone aboard the space arc sabotaged her on purpose?
1: Maybe, or maybe it's set up not to shoot something that's friendly. But then, like, in the next scene, she does use the gun to shoot the bugs, so... Who knows? The movie is full of stuff like that.
0: All right. My very first thought was, oh, they sabotaged her. Those.
1: <laughs> Wouldn't that be a fun plotline that isn't in the movie? I mean, when Seabook is fighting Cecily before he recruits her, one of his hip mounted cannons, one of his VSBRs, overheats and he starts using the other one when he then gets really close to the Vignagina and he points his gun directly at the cockpit to hold her at gunpoint, it's the one that overheated. So is he doing that intentionally to, like, threaten her with a gun he couldn't possibly actually fire? Or did they just forget? Anyway.
0: It's a fun little mystery.
1: The movie is full of those. I could not possibly point them all out.
0: I don't expect you to, but I'm sure some of our listeners are disappointed that you're not going (laughs) to (laughs) try.
1: A lot about the Federation is left up to our imaginations, and I think that's Because the Federation is the status quo, and it's a status quo based on our status quo, we can just kind of project like our opinions about liberal democratic government onto the Federation because that's what it is. It's a space future version of that. There are a couple of things in the movie and in the extended movie materials (laughs) to suggest that despite its many problems, the Federation has actually been doing pretty well ever since Char's counterattack. there's basically been no major fighting in the last 30 years. They've started building colonies again. Uh, the frontier side is all newly built. They hadn't had the wherewithal to do that from before the one year war until after Shar's counterattack. The frontier side looks like a pretty nice place to live. It's like peaceful and prosperous and self sustaining and stable. Like, we can see that the Federation has cut spending for their military. They have few new ships. They have only a couple of new mobile suit designs. They're mostly reusing old stock.
0: Speaking of that long period of peace, one more general uh, character note that stood out to me was the behavior of crowds during various parts of the movie. When you think back to Zeta and Double Zeta and the fairly orderly way in which people went about like proceeding to shelters and that there was plenty of room in the shelters for everyone, everybody knew where to go and what to do and the practiced way in which people who are used to having to do this kind of thing on the regular can go about it Mm -hmm, versus mm -hmm. the free-for-all chaos, totally ill-managed and ill-equipped attempts at getting everybody to safety in this one.
1: Absolutely. One thing that really stood out to me watching that first sequence is everybody is moving in every direction. There's some incredibly complex scenes. The the staging for them is astonishing, but with huge numbers of people and all of them moving in different directions.
0: And frequently a sense that people don't actually know where they're going. They're Mm -hmm. just trying to get away from where they were.
1: There's one scene in particular I remember. um, There's a girl on rollerblades skating along the street as people are like running sort of not even opposite her but across her path and she looks like she hasn't even realized what's going on yet she's just skating by and suddenly a wave of panicking people runs past her
0: well or the the traffic on the roads or the guy who's clambering over cars holding his bicycle because mm-hmm. the traffic is so thick he can't even get through on his bike
1: Mm-hmm. it's striking how unprepared these people are for this perhaps it is the very like success of the Federation in the last few decades. It's very stability that has created the material conditions which allows an organization like Cosmo Babylonia to emerge.
0: I found it very curious with Cosmo Babylonia. Uh, They're a very secretive organization. They have many factions. When they first invade Frontier 4, most of the regular population has never heard of them, has no clue who they are. So there's been no advanced propaganda. There has been no effort to sort of preempt the invasion with any kind of like charm offensive or uh, to win people over from the inside yet. But at the same time, they have been colluding with someone The kids speculate, and a couple of the lines indicate they might be right, that someone involved in the design and construction of the colony was in on it because that's why they would make all these sort of old European-looking buildings uh, to give the space the kind of aesthetics, the kind of gravitas that Cosmo Babylonia wants for its future capital.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in the external materials, Meitzer's brother... Hausery was a Federation politician.
0: Ha <laughs> ha, Hausman.
1: No, no, Hausery.
0: Yeah, but like the guy who was responsible for the redesign of Paris, which parts of Frontier Four strongly resemble. Oh,
1: hmm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's going to be any connections there. Hmm. Anyway, um, so Hausery was a Federation politician. So presumably, that's sort of where that like collaborationist storyline was going. And Hauser-y was, like, promoting basically the same ideals of Cosmo aristocracy, but in the Federation legislature. Uh, and he was assassinated in the process of that. He had a, he had a kind of lunatic plan to um, preserve the Earth by disintegrating illegal Earth immigrants with space-based lasers. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine why anybody would want to get rid of him. He seems like a great politician. Anyway, um, so... I think that's that's where that was going and while i'm on the subject of the novels and the earth federation legislature there is a clue in there to what i think mitzer means when he characterizes the federation as absolute democracy because apparently the way the federation legislature works is you're elected but there aren't electoral districts just like everybody in the federation votes for the members of the legislature wow so I think the implication that Meitzer is making here is that if you, as a legislator, have a constituency of all people, a population numbering in the billions, then you're not going to care about the individual fates of one colony or one colony cluster, since they represent only a tiny fraction of your total electorate. To go back to what you were um, foreshadowing with your reference to Hausmann, And the uh, occasionally Parisian-looking streets of Frontier 4. I mentioned in the prior week's episode that I think what we're seeing here is the beginning of the dissolution of the Federation into a space-warring states period, but another way to read this is essentially a reverse French Revolution that Whereas the French Revolution was a system, the Ancien Régime, like ancient system of monarchy and aristocracy, which created within itself the conditions which allowed for the rise of the bourgeoisie, of the middle classes, which then led to a clash for power between these different groups, which saw aristocracy torn down and replaced with a republic. At least that's sort of the conventional reading of how the French Revolution went down. Here we have a republic, a liberal democracy, which has created within itself the conditions for the rise of a new aristocracy, which then clashes with the existing status quo.
0: Do you think a reverse French Revolution is a better fit than the emergence of Napoleon?
1: That's a good question. (laughs) More than Napoleon, I wonder about uh, Napoleon III. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And of course, the Bourbon Restoration, the July Monarchy, and then the second French Empire under Napoleon III who is the guy who had Haussmann redesign Paris. Right. So we do have a historical example for this kind of aristocratic backlash against a revolution to put back into place an an aristocracy and a monarchy. In that conversation when Meitzer mentions absolute democracy, Cecily says, oh, so this system is the result of the popular revolution, which feels like a, a pretty good reference to take us back to the French Revolution and to similar revolutions. Likewise, visually, I'm pretty sure a bunch of the crossbone vanguard people are wearing culottes, which <laughs> were the the garb of aristocrats pre-revolution in France.
0: They're clearly a faction for whom appearances and aesthetics are extremely important.
1: Well, then maybe they should have gotten somebody to design them up some better uniforms.
0: In addition to the flags, the pomp, the show of military force, <laughs> there is what feels like A classic conservative, sort of hearkening back to an idealized previous age. Most of the dignitaries at the parade, the men are wearing suits, the women are wearing fairly old-fashioned looking dresses that look a lot like the one Cecily wore for that contest.
1: Hmm, her mother's dress.
0: High-necked, long-sleeved, long-skirted. Ruffles. And along with that desire to project emotional control and power and old-fashionedness and stability is the need to cover up any problems. Cecily notices that it's snowing when it shouldn't be. And her guard says, oh, well, there's a false rumor going <laughs> around that the weather computers were damaged in the fight. But of course, everything is fine. <laughs> it's very, there's no war in bussing,
1: This is perfectly encapsulated earlier in the movie when the Crossbone Vanguard mobile suit goes by with a speaker, blaring a woman saying, We will not harm civilians as the colony explodes around them.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> that's one of the things that is so funny about all of this when we break it down in this way is Crossbone Vanguard and Mitzer as its mouthpiece, as its head, are constantly talking about doing their best to not harm any civilians. And the Federation makes no bones about they're fine arming civilians. But at the end of the day, it's almost irrelevant what their intentions are. When mobile suits are fighting in the streets, it doesn't matter if they don't want to hurt people. They can't help it. People are like ants underfoot of giants. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't think we see anybody, like, I don't think we see any civilians get hit directly by mobile suit weapons, but we see a ton of civilians die just because a mobile suit stepped in the wrong place.
0: Landed on a building.
1: Got destroyed. And parts of it, like, rained down on people. Or it was firing nearby.
0: Which circles back around to the kids' initial reaction to all of this conflict, which is, this has nothing to do with us. This is not our problem. They're not entirely right because it's where they live. They have nowhere else to go. Everyone they know and love is caught up in this. But that these forces really don't care about them as individuals is very clear.
1: It's astonishing that the movie doesn't really do anything to link these earlier pronouncements of concern for the welfare of civilians to the indiscriminate slaughter unleashed by the bugs later in the movie. The two are in complete conflict with each other, and the movie doesn't really do anything to examine that.
0: This comes back to the importance of appearances for them, I think, that Meitzer goes out of his way to seem kindly and understanding and gentle. And at the end of the movie, this is revealed to be a lie.
1: Because Iron Mask says, I was ordered to kill nine-tenths of humanity. And who could have ordered him except for Meitzer?
0: And Meitzer turned him into a cyber-new type. And was that To make it easier for his son-in-law to then go and massacre all these people does he have some thoughts about the future of humanity and new typism and if he does why didn't he share those with cecily yeah in addition to talking about oh i told them not to harm any civilians when cecily first hears about his plan to have her be a sort of figurehead for cosmo babylonia and she freaks out a little bit he backs off immediately Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have brought that up right at our first meeting.
1: And he does kind of a silly old man routine.
0: Oh, I'm just so glad to get to see my granddaughter again. And also...
1: Going to the point of appearances, it seems like when Meitzer had Iron Mask, like, enhanced, typed, I think they might have just made Iron Mask, like, physically bigger. There's a brief flashback of him before he got enhanced.
0: And he looks pretty normal. (laughs) Exactly.
1: But the Iron Mask in the movie is a giant. He stands head and shoulders above other people. His head is weirdly small, implying a like enlarged body. Did they give him steroids because they wanted him to look more imposing?
0: There are a couple moments at the end of the movie that highlight that feeling that he's not entirely human anymore. For instance, doesn't wear a normal suit, but still moves through space without any problems. Cecily tries to shoot him and just grazes his arm and it tears his sleeve. We see what looks like skin underneath, but the fact that his if his clothing is like a normal suit, the fact that it's torn doesn't seem to affect him or harm him at all. Uh, and that could just be that the movie is getting kind of like metaphorical and weird here at the end, mm-hmm. uh, or it could be highlighting again how inhuman Iron Mask has become.
1: When he gets shot with the sniper rifle during the speech, the first shot like bounces off of his helmet, which it's an iron mask. I guess it's bulletproof. Maybe it's made from Gundarium or something. But a lot of people wonder, what if they just shot him in the chest? Mm -hmm. And I do wonder, would that have done anything? Is he still flesh enough to actually be harmed by a rifle in that way? Maybe, maybe not. That, of course, brings up the question of, Is the sniper attack real or is it a work to make him look impressive and to make the Federation look evil? Because I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. I think that's exactly the kind of thing Cosmo Babylonia would try to pull off.
0: I thought it was a real attack, but I completely agree that it's the kind of thing they would do to sort of further solidify their position. Going back to the apparent sort of hypocrisy of their stated position about trying to protect people in human life, and then wiping out lots of people. There are a couple of moments in the movie uh, where Meitzer and Iron Mask say things that I think relate to this idea. Meitzer has a whole conception of this very idealized vision of what nobility or being highborn should be, that it involves bravery and taking on risk and in many ways being more accountable for your actions than regular people are. And there's a little bit of the whole, like, job creator. Oh, it's your duty to be served by the lowborn. And also, incidentally, people having to serve you and you being served and followed in this way reinforces the whole hierarchy that we want to create and preserve. But when Iron Mask unleashes the bugs, he says, this is actually really good. No one needs to feel guilty. Mm -hmm. that in this twisted way they believe they are doing a good thing because by taking the action that is horrific but that they deem necessary, they believe they are saving other people from having to make this horrible choice.
1: This recalls Shar Aznable in Shar's Counterattack saying, I am prepared to take this great sin on myself. I will take on all the sins of the world. But when Iron Mask is not talking about absolving people of guilt by doing the killing for them, he talks a lot about self-denial, about abnegation, about not being ruled by your feelings.
0: Right. There's this equation of sort of logic with superiority or, or sort of unfeelingness with superiority. And Passions, I believe the subtitles have him describe being governed by their passions as bestial mm-hmm. and as being what caused the destruction of the Earth.
1: And this is an ideology that, that must run through Cosmo Babylonia and the Crossbone Vanguard because Zabine says something like it, too, right before he kills Anna Marie.
0: Well, he describes her as trash for letting her emotions so control her. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> which... Huh.
1: Yeah. It's also extremely gendered like everyone saying this is a man and generally they're saying it to women
0: and the idea that their positions are entirely unemotional is ludicrous
1: <laughs> absolutely the contradictions are inherent within the movie this is for once i can say that the movie actually shows us this um because Meitzer's attitude of like, with these incredible privileges that we enjoy as nobles come equivalent duties, and he talks about like, a noble person must be willing to spill their own blood, must stand their ground, etc, etc, and he does this little pose with his cane like he's holding a rifle, but of course, he is not a soldier, and never has been, and the Ronas deny themselves nothing. They live in fancy mansions and wear the best clothes and eat the best food.
0: He turns his son-in-law into a cyber type, not a member of his own blood family. Mm -hmm. He gives his son-in-law the horrifying task to do, giving himself plausible deniability if it ever gets found out.
1: And who do we see in this movie actually standing their ground in the face of impossible odds? Because it sure isn't a bunch of highborn cosmo-aristocrats. It's people like Birgit. The best representative of the cosmo-Babylonian values is Zabine who gets insulted by his own people for being lowborn.
0: Curiously, Iron Mask also has a line about this not being an era for passions, which implies that if there were different social circumstances, he would feel differently.
1: This really sounds like that old nonsense about like hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak Mm -hmm. men make hard times. Iron Mask is like, oh, the times are tough and so we must be hard. But it it doesn't actually seem like the times are tough. It seems like this would be a good time to just like let loose your passions and just be a normal, functional human being. You incredibly sexist monster.
0: Yeah. Nadia calls him out. She mentions that he never acted this way. He was not brave enough to act this way without the mask on. And then He talks about how he would like to beat her to death as if the fact that he doesn't actually do it means he's fully in control of his feelings.
1: What a charmer. What a prince. That scene struck me on this most recent watch through because Theo says, like, not now. We can talk to him later under better circumstances. And I think the crucial thing about this scene is that they have an audience. Nadia has shamed Iron Mask in public. He can't be reasonable with her. He has to be strong And Theo, who he said he had forgiven in a prior scene, has now facilitated this shaming in public again and needs to be punished, which I assume is why Iron Mask kills him with his mind.
0: I don't know that it's specific to Cosmo Babylonia per se, but one other sort of old fashioned idea that we see espoused by characters associated with Cosmo Babylonia is the primacy of the family and ideas about the obedience of children. From both Theo and Carozo, we hear statements about how Cecily should obey what her parents are telling her to do, shouldn't question it, shouldn't think about it, that the interference of people who are not in the family is unacceptable, that they are entitled to use force or violence against her because she is their daughter,
1: And this stands in contrast to the actual status of their families. Everything that Theo and Iron Mask are saying about family, it has to be read in the context of like, those relationships, those families have basically disintegrated. Nadia left both of them. And in fact, again, I know extended universe stuff, but Meitzer is also divorced.
0: And yet it is so important that Cecily, as his blood granddaughter, be the idol queen of Cosmo Babylonia.
1: Yet, despite the rhetorical importance of family bonds for the Rona ideology, Meitzer is really quick to denounce his daughter and all but expels her from the family when she doesn't live up to his ideal of how a daughter ought to behave. Their idea of family is hierarchical, with the patriarch exercising total sole discretion over who is and isn't part of the family.
0: And even on the Federation side, how many times do people suggest that because Seabook's estranged mother designed parts of the F-91, clearly he will have an advantage piloting it over other people.
1: Absolutely. Like,
0: what kind of blood heredity nonsense is this?
1: At another point, when Seabook and Dwight are talking, Dwight is like, maybe we should defect to the the Babylonian side. And Seabook is like, I can't believe the son of a soldier would say something like that.
0: I read that as Seabook thinking about how Dwight had been raised, not about the blood relationship necessarily, but similar to how so much of Seabook and Reese's reaction to their mother feels as though it's not simply because she left them, but because she left them for a reason that they deem to be a poor one, and that this circles back to the kinds of values that their father instilled in them when he was raising them himself. He left a very lucrative and more prestigious career because the things he was inventing were being used for weapons that he made what he felt was the necessary ethical, moral choice. And having been raised by a man like that, of course, they are harsh judges of Monica's behavior.
1: You ever think about how Seabook is kind of just Camille and Judo combined with all the interesting bits cut out?
0: I hadn't, but there were numerous points in this movie where I was reminded of other Gundam shows and movies.
1: His Seabook, his dad is like a materials scientist who worked on alloys that were incorporated into mobile suits. And his mom is working as a mobile suit designer. Uh, And Camille, his mom was a materials engineer and his dad was a mobile suit designer. And then like Judo, he has the like wise little sister. And also his mom is living on a different colony. It's a bit ironic And in a way that I think goes back to undermining Meitzer's whole ideology that he wants Cecily to be the queen, to be the idol, because he fundamentally believes noble-born people are just better, which is silly because he's not noble-born, his dad bought that title, but Cecily is qualified to be queen because she is noble, which makes her better than other people, but also she's the best candidate for it because she was raised among the normal people and is just like them.
0: And is young and beautiful. And at no point is he suggesting that she actually hold any power.
1: No. Though <laughs> Absolutely I, not. <laughs> I suspect that they would never have a monarch wield much power, that this is an aristocracy, not a monarchy.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Really quick, we were talking about similarities to previous Gundams. There is a bit of a role reversal with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Arno, isn't there? Because... Mrs. Arno is the one absent and Mr. Arno is the one raising the kids. And the way he talks about her, about how he loves their mother and loves her work and wanted to support her, didn't want to hold her back and wanted her to be happy, even though he made very different choices from her, he doesn't criticize her to the children. They're hard on her because they're judging by this standard, but he's not hard on her. And it makes me think of and Mirai and Mirai Mm -hmm. talking about keeping this idea of Bright alive for her children, even though he's gone.
1: hmm I was thinking as you were saying that, that the element of Seabook being cared for by his dad while his mom is away, that's Amuro stuff. That was Amuro's situation at the beginning of first Gundam. So Seabook really is just like a pastiche of previous Gundam protagonists.
0: In the opening, Dorothy is freaking out over a kid she finds dead in the street, who I thought looked an awful lot like Al. And there are numerous times when uh, one of the bridge crew, a young woman with sort of short curly hair, particularly when she's sleeping on the bridge, they've set up like a bed on the floor for her, looks like Amaro. Looks like First Gundam Amaro.
1: That's Manuela.
0: Manuela, thank you.
1: A lot of people have pointed out she looks a lot like Izumi Noah from Pat Labor.
0: Okay. Uh, And then, of course, at the very end, the space boat going out to where Seabook is feels a lot like the end of First Gundam with the small escape ship full of crew from the White Base going to find Amuro.
1: Yeah. I also remember thinking that Minmi, the medic aboard the space arc, looked a lot like Camille, maybe like a Camille 4 hybrid.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: As everyone says, Doral Rona looks just like Garma.
0: Well, since I guess we're doing this now, Zabine (laughs) Sharu. (laughs) Zabine Ne. Sharu. Hmm. Who's blonde? And where's an eye patch?
1: <laughs> We're starting to get into an era of Gundam where there are a lot of like Shahra likes, Shar clones, but that tradition hadn't yet crystallized at this point. And so you can have a lot of fun arguing about who in F ninety one is the Shar. And I think Zabine Sharu has a pretty good claim on the title of the Shar.
0: Doral and Zabiné are interesting. Doral gets very little characterization. We know he's competitive with Zabiné. We know he wants to prove himself and exceeds his orders at several points.
1: Classic Garma behavior.
0: And it does seem he might have a new type moment, the first time Seabook confronts him. Mm -hmm. But that's about all we get for Doral. Deeply curious about Zabiné, because despite being quote-unquote lowborn, he is part of that sort of uh, dialog Introducing Bararona to the family scene. Mm-hmm. He's included, which lends a little bit of credence to Anna Marie's theory that Zabine is trying to get close to Cecily, get close to Bararona, because he wants to marry into the family. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that the portrayal in the movie seemed particularly like he was trying to charm or romance her. He is being kind to her but not in a way that felt overt. It felt similar to the kind of kindness she gets from her grandfather, from people who are trying to win her over and secure her to their side. And yet, if he's lowborn and he's already been this much taken into the family, then he may well aspire to marrying in. And she seems to be the only candidate, (laughs) the most obvious candidate.
1: He does bring her at least one, and based on our discussion last week, possibly two bouquets. In the course of this movie, which could just be his, you know, courtly and respectful mannerisms with regard to his soon to be sovereign, but also could be done with romantical intent.
0: And yet, despite knowing that there's a lot of secrecy and a lot of factions within Crossbone Vanguard, he seems very naive as well when he says, oh, Meitzer can't possibly have known about this because I didn't know. Dude, you're a (laughs) lieutenant. Come on. Uh, And does not tell on Cecily when she rather bluntly asks him oh do you have a problem with the ronas a person could interpret her tone differently but i thought she seemed pretty excited by the prospect of somebody having a problem with her family uh but there's no indication that he tries to use that against her
1: yeah interpreting that scene is difficult because it's not clear at what point in the movie cecily starts planning to abandon the ronas Could it have already happened at that point? Is she looking for allies who might also have problems with the Ronas? Maybe. Could it have happened much later? Could it happen, in fact, in the moment that she and Seabook's mobile suits come together? It could literally happen that late, and it would still make sense with what the movie shows us.
0: I've already talked about Nadia and how intrigued I am by her background and her story, so I won't rehash that. But I had a couple of new thoughts going over my notes again. One of them being that while she did leave her family, she didn't really give up everything about her life with them. Not just that she kept the dress or kept the earrings, but think about the life she and Theo were living in this very old-fashioned cute little bakery in an apartment that is decorated and designed in a very old-fashioned way there's a painted portrait of her on the wall clearly certain aspects of that life were not completely gone for her
1: and that lifestyle those aesthetic choices might be very common on frontier four we know they talk about it being built in a classical style but they're clearly not universal because we see the arno household which is very modern Very sci-fi futurist. And we get a direct contrast where they pick up a snapshot of their mom in a glass four by six frame on the table and not like a beautifully painted portrait.
0: In a super ornate frame.
1: Probably guilt. Yeah.
0: Similarly, who was Theo when he ran off with Nadia? Was he always this sort of selfish, scheming man that we're presented with in the movie?
1: At least at the beginning of the movie.
0: Or is that something he became over time. Did he get disillusioned of life outside the sphere of the Ronas and decide he wanted back in?
1: The guy who gives like a cackling, evil, maniacal villain laugh after Cecily is captured by the Ronas and the guy who sneaks Nadia into the palace seem like completely different characters. They
0: do. And the guy who Cecily thinks of as her kind of foolish, kind of pathetic stepfather who still holds a torch for her mother even after being abandoned, versus the man who treats her with incredible coldness when he sees her again, Lady Bera. You know, it's as if he didn't spend the last 10 years raising her. (laughs) Clearly a pretty complicated man, but we don't see much more than the cackling.
1: This gets us to one of the movie's biggest problems at a very fundamental level. Seabook and Cecily are clearly meant to be the main characters, meant to be the protagonists. Seabook is probably meant to be more the main character than Cecily, which is unfortunate because Cecily has the more interesting story. But the real problem is that neither of them ever make any decisions. They don't take action of their own volition. They are almost entirely reactive to things that are happening around them. Seabook like, makes the decision to sneak into Frontier 4, and that could be really interesting and establish him as a character who acts independently, except that they don't show any of those parts. They just skip ahead to the part where he's reacting to stuff. Likewise, Cecily never like, thinks about her situation and makes a plan and does anything. Her most revealing moment is when her grandfather asks, oh, why didn't you evacuate when they were trying to blow up the palace? And she says, Oh, well, I thought it would be pointless, so I didn't do anything.
0: My initial reaction to Cecily was pretty strongly negative because of that. I believe I talked about that in our little reaction, like, watch along.
1: That bonus episode?
0: Yeah, because her overwhelming passivity feels really contemptible. (laughs) But it's easy to be hard on her. Uh, A lot of us go with the flow in our lives. Mm -hmm. A lot of us take the path of least resistance or the path that's laid out in front of us. And those of us who leave that path, it's typically because of connections to other people who help us do that. Mm -hmm. And so her isolation makes it even harder for her to take any kind of decisive action.
1: When she meets up with Seabook again in their mobile suits and he's like, you're piloting a mobile suit for the Crossbone Vanguard? And she's like, look, it just happened. okay? things just happened and I wound up here. I've really felt that. Like, yeah, girl, that's how life feels for me too. Only I'm not the main character of an action movie.
0: I can't help but wonder if this is a comment on the part of the writers on like kids today, because Cecily's mother made a different choice. She has an example directly in front of her that's of someone the thing. who who did just leave. Hit the bricks. That's the <laughs> you thing. can just leave.
1: All the parents have agency. The people in this movie who do stuff, who face challenges and choices and, and like choose of their own volition to do things, are all the parents who only exist at the margins of the movie. Iron Mask, Leslie Arno, Monica Arno, Nadia, Theo, they have difficult choices and make them. They drive the action.
0: And we know that Cecily's not a coward. She runs toward an explosion to save a baby. She runs God, toward an explosion. She runs toward an explosion when she first encounters her father. She's going towards the fighting instead of away from it with her friends, which is part of why her reaction once she's in the bosom of her family is so confusing. And I wish we had seen more of the pressure imposed on her, more of the isolation like How is she spending her time while all of this is going down because if there were a stronger sense of her being ground down by this a stronger sense of her being a captive it would be easier to understand why she doesn't try harder to get away plus there's that whole scene where Seabook breaks into the palace and finds her and she tells him it's too late what is that right you know she conveys that she's feeling trapped okay she says She can't commit suicide, that is not elaborated upon. We don't know if that's religious, we don't know if there's some other reason why she feels that way, but she cannot kill herself.
1: The possibility of her killing herself is mentioned twice in the movie, which is not quite enough to definitely be a thing, but seems like there's some idea there. The movie gestures towards it, magnanimously. Go, find meaning yourselves.
0: And she cuts her hair, which is an active agency, and which I assume is meant as a stalling tactic. But stalling for what? Because if it is already too late, then what's the point of stalling?
1: Previously, when I've watched the movie, I have also thought she was stalling in that moment, that it was kind of a Penelope weaving and unweaving the tapestry in order to give herself more time to not have to deal with the suitors. But on the most recent watch, I... I don't think that she is, because otherwise I can't understand why she would react to Seabook the way she does when he arrives. Right. Because if she's just stalling to find an opportunity to get away, it's right there. He just came through the window. Go.
0: Whereas if it really is a demonstration of her resolve to become a member of this family wholeheartedly, then the fact that she has made it by the time he gets there would make it too late. Exactly. It's like, no, I've already made a decision.
1: So that, I think, confirms in my mind that at that point she has decided to join, to join the family business.
0: And if we weren't yet fully convinced of how sexist the whole a young, beautiful idol queen for the people to adore is, uh, the fact that she can't possibly fulfill that role with slightly shorter hair... <laughs> Uh, should hammer it home.
1: I was actually paying a lot of attention to the hairstyles of the women who show up in the Crossbone Vanguard, and there's basically two styles. They can have it close cropped if they're a guard, um, but all the serving women wear the same style of long hair tied up in a very modest bun. There is a politics of hair at work here.
0: Not surprising. And there are Things about Cecily that kind of hint that she's fallen under the sway of this idealized vision that her grandfather has presented her with. From the beginning, we know she's snobbish. Uh, Seabook is dragging her off and she's like, you're just some engineering student. You don't have the right to take liberties with me.
1: I've seen it suggested that Seabook may be in a like a technical college instead of like a liberal arts four-year elite institution. So there's a class element.
0: So she's being snobbish with him.
1: And she has a she has a manner that is very like...
0: She's already a bit stoic. She does not get as emotional as her friends do in the the initial escape scene.
1: Yeah, she fits into that anime uh, character type of like the princess character who has the like the aristocratic bearing
0: she goes extremely cold with her mother when her mother does arrive and tries to convince her she doesn't have to do this and she can go away and I feel a bit bad for Nadia because while we can kind of extrapolate what the explanation would be for Nadia's behavior Nadia doesn't have it plotted out and propagandized in the same way that Meitzer does and so she can't lay out arguments and convince her daughter all she has is her emotion and All her daughter sees is, oh, you're this slave to your emotions who's constantly running from her responsibilities. And I don't respect that.
1: Including me, a responsibility that you abandoned 10 years ago.
0: And have never adequately explained to me why you did that.
1: And Cecily doesn't say that she still resents her mother for that. But the movie has all of these oppositional pairs that you can use to compare different characters. Nadia is opposed and paralleled by Monica, Seabook's mother. And we know, from what Seabook and Reese say about Monica, how much they resent the abandonment. So we can assume that Cecily likewise does so. Even if, in classic Rona family fashion, she doesn't express those feelings or even allow herself to acknowledge them, but just stuffs them deep inside so that they can continue to fester.
0: And that passivity that you noticed, that sense that these young people make few decisions and tend to go with the flow of what's happening around them, hints that they're young people without aspirations or direction. And to a young person with no direction, a young person of that late high school or early college age who has no idea what her future is going to be, has no dreams or plans for what she wants it to be, having someone roll up and say, ah, you are going to become like a role model for people. You are going to an icon, you are going to help reform society could be a very seductive offer.
1: I assume a lot of what we're talking about here with Cecily's motivations are artifacts of that original version of the story where by the end of the first core, the end of this movie, Cecily was still going to be with the Ronos, with Cosmo Babylonia and still be opposed to Seabook. And I think in my idealized version of this movie, if I were to rewrite it just exactly as I wanted, I would have Cecily stay on that side. I think the whole thing where she defects over to the space arc and there's some like tension there with the crew of the space arc. They blame her for everything the Ronas have done. And all of that ultimately weakens the movie and Cecily's character arc.
0: It's another go with the flow moment, right? Oh, I've been captured. Oh, okay, I guess I'm switching sides then.
1: The one moment when Seabook and Cecily actually make a decision to go and do something, well, first they decide to go fight the bugs in the colony when the space arc is leaving for reasons that are never explained. Yeah. (laughs) Like, why did they go and do that? I I can imagine some good reasons for them to do it, but the movie doesn't even acknowledge that a decision has been made. And so there is no opportunity to give the characters agency there. But while they're fighting the bugs, Seabook and Cecily have a moment together and they say, all of this is Iron Mask's fault and you and me, we're gonna go kill him. And then they do. They finally have a goal. They finally have a motivation and they go and take action to accomplish it. They did it, folks. It only took them two hours to get there, but they did it. There's even a, there's even a line when Seabook is talking to his mother when he's like, Let's worry about why we're doing things after we've done them. Let's worry about my character motivations after the movie is over, Mother.
0: Mm, I... <laughs> I interpreted that scene more as let's try to sort out our strongly negative and complicated relationships with each other after this is over.
1: Sure. But I think what he says is, like, let's worry about why Cecily and I are piloting mobile suits mm. after the fighting.
0: Uh-huh. Cecily does have a curious moment of insight where she mentions that the Rafflesia feels to her like a bug. It is like one of the bugs. Mm -hmm. And the ends of the tentacles have serrations, just like the bugs did. Mm -hmm. And they're the creations of or for the same man. And they're meant to serve the same purpose, exterminating lots and lots of people.
1: Mm -hmm. Zabine makes the same connection. Zabine says things about the Rafflesia that really apply to the bugs when... One of his wingmen suggests that they destroy the space arc, even though it's full of refugees. He's like, oh, are you just going to behave like the Rafflesia or the bugs? And when he decides to kill Gilet, it's not the bugs he's complaining about. It's the Rafflesia. So there's a connection between the two of them. Originally, when I watched this and this isn't this isn't actually supported in the text, but I, I got the idea somehow that the Rafflesia and Iron Mask were directly controlling the bugs. That he was doing it with his cyber new type of powers. I don't think that's actually what's happening, but I think I can be forgiven for making that assumption.
0: As for that conversation uh, between Monica Arno and her children, uh, (laughs) getting this out of the way first, we don't know exactly how long she was gone. We talked about that last time, but you couldn't write. You couldn't visit. You got here somehow. I think she might not be a very good mother. You couldn't send videos. And then Her desire to justify herself, and the way she keeps making excuses for her behavior.
1: And when she's like, Reese, tell me what I can do to make it better.
0: Hey, small child, you tell me, an adult, how to fix this situation I created.
1: To be fair to Monica, Reese's role in the movie is just to dispense wisdom from time to time.
0: Yeah, I, uh, (laughs) my reaction to her voice acting... In this movie was that they did not even attempt to make Reese sound her age. She sounds like an adult woman. She's wise beyond her years. And was that on purpose or did that just happen by chance?
1: Well, her dialogue makes her sound like an adult woman.
0: Yeah, her dialogue is also not at all in keeping with her supposed age.
1: I kept thinking of Alia from Dune.
0: Yes, me too. (laughs) Hey, same hat. Same hat. For those of you who are not terminally online, that's a reference to a meme. Don't worry about it.
1: (laughs) And for those of you who are terminally online and did get it, hey, same hat.
0: (laughs) One possible positive spin on her asking Reese, what do you want me to do, is that she's finally taking her children's thoughts and feelings into account. But the vibe is more... Oh my gosh, I hate that you're mad at me. Tell me what I can do so that you will not be mad at me.
1: Do you need cookies or a doll? Can I get you a pony?
0: And preferably stop being mad at me like right away.
1: Yeah, and if you could help your brother to not be mad at me either, that would be great.
0: Uh, Her hypocrisy over finding out that Seabook's the one piloting the F-91, and I didn't build this machine so my son could die horribly.
1: Uh, The worst thing, honestly, and I, I, so many things in this movie, I'm like, did you do this intentionally? are we supposed to read something from this or is this just like accidental? But that moment after they've destroyed the bugs, when Seabook and Cecily come out of the colony and they get picked up by the space arcs radar and Monica's like, oh, only two responses? And the captain is like, yes, no reading from Birgit's mobile suit. And Monica's like, hmm, but my mobile suit flies so good, doesn't it? Isn't the F-91 great? And my son, isn't he great? And his girlfriend, isn't she great?
0: I thought you were going to talk about a different horrible moment, which is after she's asked Birgit to look after Cecily and he's blown her off, uh, Seabook says to her, I've never seen you worry about someone like that before. (laughs) Her own son is like, oh, wow, you really care about this random girl who you don't even know? Uh... I, your son, have never seen you care about anyone, myself or my young sister or my father included (laughs) in that way.
1: Absolutely brutal.
0: Why does she care so much about Cecily? She doesn't know her, right?
1: I'm trying to think what it could be.
0: This whole horrible setup in a lot of ways makes the very end and her role in it that much more poignant because she is the one person who can actually help Seabook find Cecily And some of that's technical. Some of that is her adjusting settings that he doesn't even know exist. But a lot of it is coaching him and encouraging him and suggesting to him ways to think about his feelings and the power of those feelings. And for once in her life, she's helping one of her children achieve something that they want. Mm -hmm. She's doing something for them. She's helping them pursue their own goals and their own decisions This is not related to any of that, really. I know the scene of her falling off her scooter when she hits some debris is famous, but I think most of us, if we were riding a scooter down a war-torn street and suddenly saw mobile suits flying overhead, yeah, I really think most of us would fall over.
1: (laughs) Probably. Not me, though. I'm different. I think we should look at Monica and Nadia side by side and see in them people who are taking actions that they justify to themselves as being for the good of others. Uh, Nadia leaves to protect Cecily. Monica leaves to work on the biocomputer to, as she says, do good things. Not clear what those are, but she means other than mobile suit stuff. Yet, while they are justifying their actions to themselves by reference to the good that they can do for others, they're fundamentally very selfish, and they're not giving their children what their children actually need from them. And then that forces onto the children the emotional burden of, like, reconciling themselves with that.
0: Yeah, why doesn't Nadia also take Doral, for instance? Why does she take one of her children and not the other?
1: She, like most people who watch this movie, simply forgot that Doral existed.
0: Possibly positive read. She knows that this whole Rona family system is more empowering for men, or she considers it to be more empowering for men and much less so for women. And so her daughter needs to be rescued from it and her son doesn't. But there is nothing in the movie to indicate to us that that was her thought process. Mm -hmm. That's me coming up with excuses for her out of the air.
1: Maybe she felt that they would definitely go after the eldest son, but not necessarily go after the daughter.
0: And the treatment of Monica Arno by the movie is pretty sexist, because a man who made those same decisions would not feel as much need to justify himself. Mm -hmm. And the feelings toward him wouldn't be as harsh because the expectations are different. It's, oh, how can you be such an unfeeling mother? The same thing that the Ronas say is a virtue in a mother is a, a horrible shortcoming. And, you know, Mr. Arno... Talks about her getting hysterical, which is a term with hundreds of years of sexist baggage. But at the same time, Mr. Arno's attitude toward his estranged wife, ex-wife, it's unclear. I think they're still together. Yeah, I I thought so too. Okay, Uh, he doesn't seem to resent her, and he's supportive of her desire to work and of her career.
1: Implores Uh, the children to think well of her.
0: And that's all progressive, especially for the time. And he is someone who over and over again sacrifices for other people. Once his own kids are safely on that space boat, he goes back because he sees a kid alone in the port who's very scared. He joins the resistance. He, like we said, gives up this job. He gives up getting to live with his wife so that she can be happy. He is someone who makes a lot of self-sacrificing choices.
1: And he, I think we should contrast with Theo but the portrayals of Theo are so inconsistent that it's hard to read anything useful from that. Part of why I'm connecting these characters is not just because they are positioned in similar places in the narrative, similar relationships to key characters, but also because the movie tends to introduce them in pairs. Like, we first see Leslie Arno, and we first see Theo Fairchild within just a couple of seconds of each other in the opening sequence. Likewise, the introductions of both Monica and Nadia to the story are the pictures of the two respective women in the two respective households, introduced one after the other. To go into um, some pairings that might be a little more contentious, I think Colonel Cosmo and Iron Mask. They're introduced right next to each other. Both of them are these um, like abusive, violent, hyper-masculinized, commanding figures in their respective sides who are manipulating and forcing the kids at the center of the story to work for them.
0: And both of whom project a lot of power and initially seem as though they're not under anyone else's control, but who by the end of the movie, it's very clear they are in fact tools of much bigger organizations.
1: And they are killed in very similar ways. Cosmo gets killed by one of the bugs and then Iron Mask actually ends up getting killed by the Rafflesia itself. Somebody corrected us on this after last week's episode that um, what actually happens is that Seabook gets right up close to the cockpit of the Rafflesia and then instead of firing, he dodges out of the way and the Rafflesia, targeting his afterimage, ends up destroying itself. Thank you to Calder for pointing that out. So to the extent that the Rafflesia and the bugs are connected, the deaths of Cosmo and Mask are connected.
0: And the irony of Iron Mask in that moment talking about Seabook as a monster.
1: They're also both of them weirdly invulnerable. We already talked about Iron Mask getting shot and being fine, but um, Cosmo, and I think mostly for humor, but at one point Cosmo's hand gets like crushed in like a heavy bulkhead door. Mm -hmm. And at another time he falls out of the ship, plummets like 30 feet, and then gets grabbed by a metal arm from below (laughs) that would like absolutely have snapped his back Yep, and he's just fine.
0: We haven't yet talked a lot about Seabook.
1: What's there to say? He is a nice boy.
0: There are a couple of things about his portrayal that I find very interesting. To start with, he makes a horrible first impression because the first thing he's doing is physically dragging a girl someplace she doesn't want to be into a contest he's entered her into without her permission or knowledge so that he can win a bet.
1: I think in the novel, he even, like, unintentionally uses his subconscious new type of powers to get the crowd to vote for her.
0: So, you know, just a really awful first impression.
1: It doesn't get that much better when the running starts, because there's a bit, um, he's, like, he's running down a slope, and there's a little kid, like, a little kid there, and he's like get down and he just shoves the kid into the floor
0: well he he initially is is helping the kid in a more gentle way but it's true he violently pushes the kid out of the way of harm though and I found this really interesting because uh, more so than previous Gundam that we've watched I think the characters in this show who are looking after small children they care about the small children but they're not caretakers. <laughs> They do not have experience with this, they are not motherly or fatherly per se. They're doing their best, but they are a bit rough and clumsy about this. You know, Dorothy scolds a kid for crying at one point, like, they're doing their best, but their best is just okay. As opposed to Frabo, who was this ideal of motherliness.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Or even Fa, who, like, clearly resented being forced to do mother things but was generally very motherly.
0: Yeah, they gather up all these kids they don't even know because they know those kids need help. They can't just be left there, but they're not very good at this. Similarly, the shots of Seabook struggling to pilot the gun tank, tank mobile suit.
1: It's a kind of gun tank.
0: Uh, they show both his hands and feet on the controls and that he kind of fumbles with both of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm still hung up on him shoving that kid. Okay. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, think, I think this is an animation failure more than anything else, but they don't actually then have any, like, threat appear that would justify it. A mobile suit flies past them pretty low, but neither Seabook nor any of the other adults in that same shot take cover. And immediately afterward, Seabook, like, stands up and just runs off. He doesn't look at the kid or help the kid back up or anything like that. It's one of those bits where I don't think it was supposed to make Seabook look as bad as it does, but it looks so bad
0: he tries to intervene when Theo is threatening Cecily and trying to drag her off by force unfortunately a lot of Seabook's dialogue is really clumsy it's a lot of like say the quiet part loud just state these positions and he says something about how you know even within a family the way Theo is treating Cecily is not acceptable it's not okay uh you know later he has his line about how it's wrong to take power by force (laughs) that he just mutters to himself walking through the crowd at the rally. Mm-hmm. Early on, he is continually objecting to being called a new type. It's unclear why exactly, but it, it bugs him. He does look after Reese and try to protect her, even though he can't really <laughs> under the circumstances. <laughs> this is arguably a C-Book thing. Uh, it really has to do with the F-91. But did you notice that there's this contrast between Iron Mask, who needs the mask in order to take this decisive action, and Seabook slash the F91, where the mask of the mobile suit pulls away before he does that final like dart in, dart out so that the Rafflesia is destroyed.
1: Uh-huh. So what is happening when the F91 opens its mask like that um, is basically it's venting an enormous amount of heat because it's moving so fast. And um, that's like venting your feelings. It opens its mask and it screams its feelings into the void.
0: And that's his strength.
1: Which is in stark contrast to Seabook himself, who is for the most part pretty staid as a character. He doesn't have those real like flashes of emotion that you got with a Camille or a Judo.
0: Yeah, really just that one scene after his father has died where he goes into his room by himself. Mm-hmm. I also find it deeply ironic that one of his few decisive moments, the one you talked about him and Cecily having, this realization that Iron Mask is the key to all of this and they have to get rid of him because I think they fall into the trap that a lot of people fall into of wanting to be able to handle these situations by dealing with one person. Clearly all the cruelty and evil of Crossbone Vanguard hinges on this one person and if we get rid of him, everything will be better.
1: They're definitely wrong the movie knows they're wrong. This is probably partly to give the movie a climactic finish, to make the ending meaningful in some way.
0: It absolutely makes sense to their characters and narratively it sets up that ending where first they think, "Ah oh, yes, we've done it." And then instead you see these massive fleets flying off in the distance and, "Oh, there's still so much <laughs> left this is to deal only with." The beginning. While this was a positive step, there's still so much left to do.
1: And I know coming out of this, the staff thought they were going to make a show. I don't know if by the end of making this movie they still wanted to, but there were still plans that this was going to be essentially the pilot for a show. A lot of the movie's incoherence, a lot of its loose threads, a lot of its um, pointless characters would make more sense in a series where they need to be introduced early but then um, can sort of disappear for a while and come back for their own dedicated segments. But in the movie itself, there's so much duplication and so many roles that could easily be combined. I guess the most obvious one to me is Doral and Zabine should just be one character. We don't need Sam and Ozma and Arthur and Dwight to be the, like, buddies brigade. It could just be Dwight and a combination of the other ones
0: and we learn so little about them i mean dwight probably gets the most characterization he's clearly very privileged very charming he's the mc at the contest in the beginning uh his father's in the military which means he has access to inside information oh yeah no corruption in the federation whatsoever i'm sure <laughs> uh
1: the movie briefly gestures at the possibility of a Seabook Dwight Cecily love triangle.
0: Right, but the only setup for that is Seabook accusing Dwight of thinking of leaving the Federation because he misses Cecily.
1: And Dwight is very insistent about getting Cecily up on the stage for the beauty pageant, um, and also that the like this is just how stories work. The setup of the like aristocratic princess girl and the more posh suitor and the more like working class suitor. It's like that song, Two Princes.
0: It's possible that his uh, practicality, if you want to call it that, his malleability, his willingness to switch sides if it'll keep him alive is meant to be a nod at his privileged position. But that's unclear. There's not enough time spent on it to to know if they mean for those things to be connected. Mm -hmm. What is he doing for most of this movie? The fact that we don't know is, I think, kind of damning. Like, does he matter or doesn't he?
1: He's mostly been playing Parcheesy.
0: In First Gundam and to some degree in Zeta and Double Zeta 2, even really kind of fringe members of the crew, we had a clear sense of what their role was. And we completely lose that in this movie. Or there's no effort made to do it. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I feel like the most characterization that, say, Sam or Azuma ever get is actually in the in the beginning spaceboat sequence when Azuma puts on a normal suit and is like, oh, if things get hairy, somebody might need to go outside. OK, so you're, you're the kind of person who does that. All right. And Sam carries a rocket launcher onto the spaceboat. It's like, oh, okay. you're the sort of person who carries a completely useless weapon into the place where it could kill all of you if anything goes wrong.
0: Sam does get a really sick red jumpsuit, though.
1: And he's got that hair. And the glasses. He's got like a gold chain.
0: He's got like a great look. He is the early
1: (laughs) 90s personified.
0: And Sam is the only other one who tries to get in the F-91.
1: Now, if you took all of that time and effort spent on characterization and combined it into one character um you still wouldn't have a very good character but you'd be a lot closer
0: similarly the small kids uh, have almost no characterization and almost no purpose in the movie except to demonstrate that the teens looked after them when they didn't have to and that the adults uh, push them around and treat them horribly and that's their role i guess is to be like treated badly by adults for most of the movie
1: and i'm basically on board with that for this movie Um, I actually wouldn't change the kids very much at all. They get about as much characterization as I expect for children in media that isn't really about them. And they reveal important things about other characters.
0: I really wish Dorothy could have had more going on. Yes. She looks like a pop star in a world where almost every other woman we see is either wearing a uniform of some kind or dressed very traditionally. And instead she looks like she belongs on MTV.
1: Yeah. I think there's a mention at one point that one of her parents is like in local government on the side.
0: She also gets them some inside knowledge. She has lasso skills for some <laughs> reason. Tell me more about that.
1: Yeah. Okay. Combine Dorothy and Dwight.
0: <laughs> when one of the adults tries to like scold her into managing the kids, she's like, they're not my kids, which I appreciate. Yeah. Love, love Dorothy. <laughs> uh, But yeah, there's really not much for her to do. She's another one where it's unclear what exactly she's up to most of the time, other than corralling the kids and taking care of the baby. There are a fair number of black and brown people, both in the backgrounds and in the cast. Uh, However, most of them don't get much characterization or much time to be active in the story.
1: Yeah, this is one of those that's like way better than prior Gundam entries in terms of like, representing different skin tones, but still pretty pathetic in terms of having them be actual characters.
0: There's Anna Marie. There's one of the women on the bridge crew of the space arc.
1: The only one on the bridge who I think doesn't ever get named mm, in the movie.
0: Yeah. There's a man who's drawn to obviously be Asian. Kane. There's Manuela, who with a name like that, she's Latina of some kind. And there's a black woman. Um, one of the lead mechanics is black, but is drawn in a somewhat racist caricature way. He
1: has the the like thick donut lip thing. yeah, And he has these very exaggerated um, movements that feel totally out of place in the movie. I'm not sure what's going on there. A part of me thinks he's based on Bill Cosby. That's uh, Nanto Ruse is I think his name.
0: The fact that Seabook's black friend is the one who gets killed, you know.
1: I mean, movies of the 80s and 90s. I'm mostly on board with having one of Seabook's friends die to like give him that motivation to prevent anyone else from dying.
0: And to contrast his and Cecily's emotional reactions to that moment, Mm -hmm. that he is completely distraught and Cecily is like, no, get it together. Hey, wake up, we have to stay alive right now.
1: I do think that could have happened significantly later in the story with Mm -hmm. a character who was more developed, more of a Ryu Jose situation. And probably that should have been the Sam Azuma Arthur amalgam character, (laughs) that sense of a a hunger for violence that Sam brings into it when he's carrying that rocket launcher around. When Seabook says, it's like you have a death wish, right? They should have taken those elements of the story and had that character actually die somewhere around the midpoint. Actually, you know what? They should have had that character, who I'm going to call R. Samzuma, get to pilot a Federation mobile suit like he clearly wants to. And then he could have been killed by Cecily before Seabook's infiltration at the midpoint of the movie. So when she says, it's too late for me, the audience would know that it's because she's feeling guilt-ridden. The final one of these oppositional pairings that I want to talk about is Birgit and Annamarie. Both are introduced almost right next to each other. and. Both serve a role of, like, somewhat more experienced but not actually in-command mobile suit pilot relative to the, the like, main character, whether it's Cecily or Seabook.
0: And yet both of them are pretty mid.
1: Excuse me, Birgit is a lovely young man.
0: Oh, I, I don't mean uh, their personalities or the other stuff per se. I was thinking specifically as mobile suit pilots. Mm. Birgit is portrayed as competent but not much more. And Anna Marie thinks to herself that she doesn't think she can beat Cecily. <laughs> and Cecily has been doing this for a couple of weeks.
1: <laughs> but Anna Marie does just run through the sort of grunt pilots within this black squadron, which is like the elite squadron of the unit. So while Anna Marie can't compare to Cecily and she gets killed by Zabine, she doesn't have much of a problem with the rank and file. So she's a pretty good pilot. Birgit, I think. We have to read his performance. And I know I'm coming off like a total apologist for both of these characters, but Birgit, you have to read his performance relative to the other Federation pilots who basically can't do anything because they're in these antiquated, old, not very good mobile suits. These outdated Jagans and heavy guns, which, while better than a Jagan, are still no comparison to uh, Crossbone Vanguard mobile suits. I don't know, maybe I just like both of them, and so I want to defend them and their honor.
0: Well, they both add compelling emotional complexity to the story that is missing from a lot of other characters. You know, Birgit is someone who is frequently frustrated by the presence of non-combatants on the ship. Uh, you have to kind of think of him as a reservist. He probably thought he was never going to see real combat, or if he did, it would be very small scale, and suddenly he is stuck in a war, an all-out war, and it would be so much easier (laughs) if they didn't have to worry about these people. And I resent him for taking that attitude. I resent him for how cold and occasionally cruel he is to these kids, but I can also understand why he's frustrated. Similarly... You know, Anna Marie is a complete hypocrite when she comes at Zabine and says, how can you do all of these things? How can you serve a fake aristocracy? And it's what were you what are you doing (laughs) until a week ago? And I wish we had had more time to really see her and Zabine together. Did he encourage her? Did he even know about how she felt or has she been nursing her feelings for a long time. Were they even actually involved with each other at some point and he abandoned her to pursue Cecily? Is she just kind of delusional and in love with this guy? Plus, she reminds me of Masai
1: From Double Zeta?
0: Yeah, it does feel as if maybe she is meant to. Hmm. And her suicidal charge at Zabine echoes love suicide stories, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm.
1: She says, let's die together
0: in some ways is like a gender-swapped version of a very common kind of gendered violence where a man says, well, if I can't have you, no one can, and kills an ex-partner or someone who's rebuffed him. Uh, And that when it appears that Zabine is actually acknowledging and interacting with her stated feelings, she gets distracted for the moment that allows him to kill her, that she, she is affected by that very deeply.
1: Well, like Nadia... She is a person whose feelings were crushed by the ideology of Cosmo aristocracy and chose to leave.
0: Interesting how it's mostly women who choose to leave. Make of that what you will.
1: Mostly or perhaps entirely.
0: Yeah. I'm leaving the the door open for something I don't know about since there's a (laughs) lot of that in F91. But uh, as characters that add emotional layers to the movie, I think Birgit and Anna Marie are fantastic. Also, Birgit's death scene is so brutal, and uh, I mean that literally and emotionally.
1: Likewise, Anna-Marie's.
0: Yeah, if we had any question about uh, Zabine and how he fits with the Cosmo-Aristocracy, whether he ascribes to that same ideal of Stoicism, this scene answers that question.
1: There's a bit earlier that seems very revealing for him when He's talking to Cecily Berra, and he says, I've known Maitzer and Iron Mask for a long time, and they do not mix personal feelings with ideology. Significant pause, I cut to the side, look back at her, and neither do I. He wants to believe in it, he wants to be that, but he's not entirely there. Like almost every other character in this movie, he seems like he has a really interesting story. And it would be great if they had made that movie.
0: (laughs) Next time, not next week, but the week after, on episode 7.6, Unfulfilled Potential, we continue our research and discussion of Gundam F91 and Legitimate Grievances and Cool Aesthetics. You'd think by now they'd make child sized normal suits. It belongs in a museum. Cowgirl boots, lassoos, real Western vibes. Baby on board. Manuel, relay instructions. They're just little guys. And we're all trying to find the person responsible. This is only the beginning.
1: Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is His Last Share of the Stars by Dr. Turtle. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, Additional information about the Lenape people and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at gundampodcast or by email to hosts at gundampodcast.com. And thank you for listening. With Gundam's international popularity on the rise, there are now more opportunities to share your wrong Gundam opinions than ever before. So get out there and tell some stranger that... Gundam F91 could have been a masterpiece. If only it had better character animation, lots of gratuitous wheels, and the bugs were replaced by killer harrows. Thanks to Mark Simmons and Loretype on Twitter for contributing to this week's Wrong Gundam Opinion.
0: Do you have any special requests? I see. So, you are shifting the burden of having to choose what cookies to buy to me.
1: <laughs> like the main characters in this film, I will make no decisions. I just <laughs> oh. let things happen to me.
0: Oh. <laughs> Blah, that's really hard to say with the two M's. You'd think by now they'd make child sized mobile suits when I meant to write normal suits.
1: <laughs> You'd think by now they would make child-sized mobile suits though.
0: Sorry, Cecily. Cecily.
1: <laughs> <Beep>.
0: <laughs> and one last thing, which is kind of a C-Book thing. I don't- guess there's two. I can't say one last thing. Uh.
1: If ever there was a character whose character design screamed, like, this is an interesting person, and whose actual role in the plot... I've lost the thread of this
0: comparison. <laughs> um, well, she, uh... Yeah. So all I have left to talk about is the religion stuff. Um, But I'm not quite sure how to transition.
1: Um, Maybe cut the religion, because we're coming up on two hours now. Oh, okay. Um, I think this might be an episode with no research recently.